Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know, our podcasts come in three different formats. We have our 10-minute lesson series where we look at specific policy areas and just pick out the key points that we think people need to know in a very short space of time. We have our interview series where we get to chat to experts on a really wide range of policy topics. And then we have our seminar series where we can listen back to presentations at previous events. And this week, it's one of those. Earlier this month, we launched our annual socioeconomic review, Social Justice Matters, for 2023, a guide to a fairer Irish society. We published this book because we see Ireland moving into a post-COVID world And alongside that, we face really, really, really major challenges. How to address the cost of living crisis, how to deliver on housing, healthcare and other vital services to everybody, including those fleeing war. How to meet our climate targets whilst protecting those most impacted. And really to do this, we think that Ireland needs a new social contract in order to be able to respond to these challenges. There are alternative and better ways of managing and organising economic activity to deliver a better standard of living and well-being for everyone in society. So in our publication, we address the challenges we face and we outline ideas and proposals for a new social contract. And we're looking really to answer the questions, where do we want to go and how do we need to get there? We hope you enjoy Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the launch of Social Justice Matters 2023 Guide to a Fairer Irish Society. My name is Michelle Murphy, and I'm joined here this afternoon by my colleagues Sean Healy, Suzanne Rogers, Shabelle Debbie, and Colette Benefit Bennett. And we're going to go through our annual socioeconomic review, which looks at the long-term trends and challenges facing government. Uh, potential solutions. It covers 10 key policy areas and we provide independent analysis and detailed policy proposals. And it's our key annual reference point on issues of social justice and social policy. And I suppose the theme emerging from Social Justice Matters 2023 is that we need to be harnessing the resources, our economic resources, in order to deliver a better, better standard of living for everybody in society and a new social contract, one that can deliver affordable housing, affordable accommodation for all, accessible health care, accessible education and true participation. And underneath all of that, we need sustainability, looking at the climate challenges that we face. So obviously, uh, there's a lot to cover this afternoon. There's 10 key policy areas in the review. It's 352 pages, so you'll be glad to know we're not going to go through each area individually. But what myself and my colleagues are going to do this afternoon is look at uh, the main themes from the review and cover most of those policy areas. And we're going to look at issues such as the social contract, resourcing a social contract, the infrastructure and services that are required, addressing some of the future challenges we're going to face, and then investing in people and communities and looking at a a dialogue that might get us to the point of a new social contract. So I'm going to pass over now to our CEO, Dr. Sean Healy, to take us through Social Justice Ireland's view and position on a new social contract. Our Social Justice Ireland's position is that Ireland's social contract is broken. The social contract is the general agreement, often unwritten, between citizens and government on the principles and goals that should uh, collectively address their common challenges. 
while the economy in Ireland has experienced record growth since the pandemic, services in areas such as housing and healthcare and public transport are far below expected standards. So in our annual socioeconomic review, uh, we are saying that inflation and inadequate social welfare increases have eroded real incomes in the past year. And we're calling for a new social contract between government and the social, what we were con uh, previously called the social partners uh, to reduce the growing levels of food, housing, health and transport poverty, and to enhance the environment. The benefits of Ireland's growing economy must be harnessed using a new social contract to ensure a fairer distribution of life's necessities. Uh, Irish people do not want to see a widening rich-poor gap, and neither do they want to see the persistence of a deeply divided two-tier society. The state, however, seems to be subverting these key community values in the interests of unbridled profit. Social Justice Ireland believes that a new social contract is required to address the core challenges now facing society. Real citizen engagement and a new social dialogue should be at the core of such a contract. As Ireland moves towards forward in this rapidly changing post-COVID world, it needs to cure the virus of social injustice, inequality, marginalization, and environmental destruction. And in its place, it needs a new social contract and a new social dialogue to facilitate movement towards that social contract. Now, this new social contract should be focused on simultaneously delivering five things, a thriving economy, decent infrastructure and services, just taxation, good governance, and sustainability in the environmental, social, and economic areas. It is not possible to develop a sustainable, thriving economy without simultaneously developing decent infrastructure and services. Just taxation is also required in that context, and so is good governance and sustainability at every level of policy making. Now, securing these developments should be the major priority of government in the months and years ahead. And this can be supported by a new social dialogue that includes all sectors, which is focused on enhancing the capabilities of our community and society. We need investment in infrastructure and services to develop a thriving economy. We need just taxation to fund this, but we need good governance to ensure people have a say in shaping the decisions that impact on them. And we also need to ensure that everything is done in a sustainable manner. This will require new approaches to the world of work, as well as recognition of much of the work done in society that goes unpaid, under-recognized and undervalued, and it needs to be recognized and valued. It would also require recognition that our tax and welfare systems are not fit for purpose in the 21st century. The social welfare system and the income tax credit system should be replaced by a universal basic income, which would be far more appropriate for today's economy. A new social contract will also require us to give climate action the priority it urgently needs. The response to COVID-19 showed that society can be mobilized quickly and effectively to address a real and present danger. Climate change represents such a danger, but the policy response so far has been wholly inadequate. The same can be said of the ineffectual response to the current housing crisis. We need quick and effective responses to major challenges such as climate change and housing shortages if we are to repair the social contract. Back to Michelle.
Thanks, Sean. And now I'll pass over to Colette to look at the issue of resourcing and how we might resource our social contract. Thank you very much. Um, so I suppose we're going to look at what resourcing we need. And for, for us, ultimately, the, the vast majority of that is about taxation. Um, so wait, wake up, everybody. Um, taxation plays a key role in shaping Irish society through funding public services, through supporting economic activity, through redistributing resources and to enhancing fairness in society. Um, as a consequence of that, it's really critical that there is clarity with regard to both the objective of the tax and the instruments that are aimed at achieving all of those goals. To ensure the creation of a, a fairer and more equitable tax system, um, policy development in this area should adhere to our core policy objective, which is to collect sufficient taxes to ensure that full participation in society for all through a fair tax system in which those who have more pay more and those who have less pay less. Um, in terms of what we need to resource, we will be talking much more about that today. Um, but ultimately, as our population expands and ages, we have increasing demands on our resources from housing and healthcare and education and public services to meeting our international human rights obligations. And again, we, we'll be talking about that later on. We need a new target to increase our overall tax take and increase it, we, we must. So while we currently have bumper taxes, there's looking at a, a general government surplus of 10 billion this year, potentially 16 billion next year. Um, we can't rest on our laurels there. We believe in Social Justice Ireland that policy should focus on increasing Ireland's tax take. We have proposed a new tax take target that's set on a per capita basis um, and it's calculated using valid data in terms of, of the CSO population data, ESRI population projections, CSO and Department of Finance data in relation to um, recent and future nominal overall taxation levels. Um, and we believe that it should reach a, a level that is equivalent to 15,000 per person in 2017 terms. That's not to say that every single person will be paying 15,000 in tax, but it will. it's the, the per capita equivalents. Um, it's to make sure that those, as I said earlier on, have more, pay more, um, and those who have less, pay less. So in terms of, of how we would do that on the next slide, um, we believe that the, the tax that people and organizations should be required to pay should be based more on the value that they subtract by the use of the common resources. Um, and that would also then ultimately meet our, our sustainability targets or go some way to meeting our sustainability targets rather than the value they add um, or what they contribute to the common good. And whatever changes are made should also be guided by the need to build a fairer taxation system, one which adheres to our already stated uh, policy objective, which I referenced earlier on. We ultimately need to reform our taxation system and broaden our tax base. And to do that, we need to look at a variety of di different taxation types, and you'll see them listed on the slide there. So just very, very briefly, um, in terms of tax expenditures and, and tax reliefs, we need an examination of the, the comprehensive tax expenditure data that is published by the revenue commissioners. Um, and you know, once we go through that, it is it's very informative. So within that list that was published and certainly that the latest version of it, um, there were approximately 85 discretionary tax breaks involving revenue foregone. So money that is leaving 
you know, that, that, that the, the exchequer is not collecting um, of about 15.8 billion a year. Um, and these are tax relieving measures that could be phased out um, or certainly have sunset clauses. They could be restructured. They could be delivered more appropriately as direct expenditure, but ultimately they need to be part of the budget conversation. They are part of budget packages. Our, our resources depend on our taxation. Um, so we need to start including tax expenditures as part of that debate. In terms of corporation taxes, we believe that the issue of corporate tax contributions is principally, again, one of fairness. So profitable firms with substantial income should make a contribution to society rather than pursuing various schemes and methods to avoid those contributions and to avoid making um, that, that, that kind of societal benefit. Site value tax, and there's been some discussion about that recently. Um, we believe that the introduction of a site value tax would definitely be a better alternative than the current value-based local property tax. A site value tax would also lead to more efficient land use within the structure of social, environmental and economic goals. Um, and, you know, the, the report on the Commission on Taxation and Welfare was very welcome in this in that it suggested the adoption of a land value tax on all property, uh, not subject to the current local property tax. So we would welcome that recommendation as a, a first step. Um, in terms of empty houses and underdeveloped land, we've approximately 166,000 vacant homes, not including uh, derelict sites or holiday homes in the country. Um, given the current housing crisis that we were we are in, the owners of these homes should be both incentivized for bringing these properties into use. So there are various incentives already there through regeneration schemes, repair and leasing schemes, but they should also be penalized for not bringing them into use by the introduction of a higher vacant homes tax than is currently in place. Um, and we would also propose a levy of 200 euro a month with the revenue collected by local authorities and ring-fenced by local authorities for use in housing within their local authority area. In terms of taxing windfall gains, you know, we, we note the introduction of the, the windfall gains tax on land in the housing for all strategy, um, that the land value sharing, but we believe that the rate is too low and a windfall tax level of 80% of the profit would be more appropriate. In terms of financial transactions tax, it's a progressive tax. It's designed to target only those profiting from financial speculation. And it offers the dual benefit of dampening needless and often reckless financial speculation and generating significant funds for the exchequer. And then finally, in terms of carbon taxes, we very much welcomed the introduction of this tax and we regretted the initial lack of measures around protecting those who are most impacted by it. Uh, in particular, those low income households and rural households who are dependent on on fossil fuels. Uh, while this has not been fully addressed, we do welcome that all revenue from the carbon tax since 2020 have been earmarked to fund environmental programmes, energy efficient measures um, and social protection measures targeting low income households. Looking to the planned increases over the next decade, we believe that government should be more specific in defining how it will assist these rural and low-income households. We are also concerned that the effectiveness of the tax is being undermined a little, um, as there's less focus on the original intention, which was a behavioural change. 
Moving on then to slide, so the next slide, thank you. Um, and we, we look at our international obligations. You know, we are a small country, but we have a, a wide reach and we are very privileged to be part of, of the global north. We have a relatively good track record on overseas development aid or ODA um, and budget 2023 allocated more than a billion euro uh, in, in that direction. However, we are concerned that government may be double counting a little when it comes to progressing towards the targets. So since 2015, we've had targets in respect of both ODA and climate finance, targets which came from separate international meetings and commitments um, and agreements and therefore are distinct from each other. We note from recent Irish aid reports and the publication of the climate finance roadmap last year, um, that the two are being conflated. So if that is the case, then Ireland is further behind on its commitment to the 0.7% of national income by 2030, the, the UN commitment. We therefore believe that we need to build, rebuild this commitment. We need to accelerate um, that roadmap to the UN target by two years to 2028. And within the, the book that we're launching today, we have set out a progressive plan to do exactly that. We need also to progress towards our commitment on climate finance. Um, um, you know, there was a, a report published in 2021 by ODI that suggested we are quite far behind in that. And even if we met our 225 million target, um, we still would be only around a, a third to a, a quarter of our, our actual commitment in that regard. Um, and then not forgetting the commitments that were made at COP27 last year in relation to loss and damage. Again, that is an additional commitment not wrapped up within the, the ODA funding. Um, the world is essentially in crisis. Climate action is beyond urgent. Countries in the global north must honour our commitments and be transparent about the process for doing just that. And finally, we must recommit to the Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGs. It's a policy framework to build a better international community, to eradicate poverty, ensure decent work, good education, sustainable communities, better life on land and underwater. We currently rank eighth out of 14 EU countries in terms of our progress towards these goals, and we can and we must do better than that. Moving on then um, to a more domestic challenge, our housing challenges. We have an affordability crisis in both house purchase, home ownership, um, and in terms of our rental, our private rental sector. We have a homelessness crisis. We have about 11,800 people accessing emergency homeless accommodation within that, that two-week period, within the month. Um, and I, I'm very clear about how I say that, or I try to be very clear about how I say that, because that is not the number of homeless people. That is the official data who have accessed emergency homeless accommodation within a specified period. It doesn't count refuge, refuges, whether domestic violence refuges um, or international protection applicants who have been approved, but who are still in emergency accommodation or couch surfers or those who are over accommodated. So there is a, a vast number of people who are not counted within that data. There is a, a major social housing need, an estimate of 133,000 um, when you count housing assistance payment, RAS, uh, tenants and all those who are on the waiting lists. Um, and then we need to account for population expansion and pent up demand. Housing for all does not take into account adequate pent up demand. 
Um, it also doesn't take into account the, the population expansion that we are seeing just through demographic change in terms of ageing, through economic migrancy, but also through forced migration. And we saw with the situation in Ukraine what that can do to a population uh, such as ours, and we need to properly prepare for it so we have a much more adequate response. Moving on then to the delivery of a affordable and appropriate accommodation. Uh, we need the right type of supply. It can't be supply at all costs of any old type of building. We're seeing what that looked like with MICA, with Pyrite, um, and what that costs ultimately, both in terms of financial costs, but also in societal costs as well. Um, so we need to make sure that we are building the right houses in the right areas at the right price. Um, we need to look at supply side cost reductions, making sure that we are, are using the best, most modern technologies, but also methodologies to make sure that we are making that, that kind of cost effective approach and that we are using our procurement properly, that we are able to, I suppose, take take um, advantage of um, bulk buying in terms of our, our procurement we want a target of 20% of all housing stock to be social housing in line with other European, advanced European countries. At the moment, it's between 8 and 9%. We want to see the provision of housing first, whereby homeless people get, get a property or a home um, and then they get wraparound support. We would like to see that expanded to families. It's currently available to uh, vulnerable adults, but there are vulnerable adults in the making currently accessing emergency accommodation who are struggling with their developmental milestones um, and that needs to be supported. We want a life cycle approach to housing development and town planning so that when we talk about things like right sizing and downsizing and there's a lot um, in coverage at the moment about the use of local authority housing because there are spare rooms that aren't being used because there's nowhere to downsize or right size to within that sector. There's nowhere to do it in the private sector either. So we need when we are developing our towns um, and our villages to actually look at what do you need from your first home leavers, your student accommodation um, through all your kind of early family, through older age and beyond. Um, we need to support those who have been on their knees in terms of mortgage arrears for the last decade and a half. Um, so there's about 5,000 mortgages in arrears for 10 years plus. We need to look at uh, a debt for equity swap, an actual mortgage equity scheme to support those in long term mortgage arrears and um, to get out of that hole. They are getting those letters every month um, and nothing is changing for them because they don't have the capacity to do it. We've seen what can be done with the affordable home scheme. It's an it's an equity stake that the government is taking to get people on the ladder. We would like to see the same mechanisms being used to actually help people who are struggling. And then finally, in, in relation to the compulsory sale orders to deal with with vacancy and dereliction, that local authorities have the capacity to force a sale, thereby kind of taking out the costs associated with being the middleman in, in buying, as you would with a compulsory purchase, okay. um, and actually putting these properties up and getting people into them. Thank you. Thanks, Colette. And just to remind everyone, if you have any questions for us, we'll be taking a Q&A session at the end to put them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. So now moving on to another area of infrastructure and services that we, we address in our socioeconomic review is how do we meet the health needs of an aging and growing population? And in terms of our core policy objective in this area is that 
our healthcare services focused on enabling people to attain the WHO definition of health as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, not just the absence of disease or infirmity. Now, we're all very well aware of the challenges facing our health service, those in terms of access, in terms of waiting list and waiting list times. Even if we met our targets, we'd still have the worst waiting times in Europe. Also, the challenges in terms of barriers and accessing the barrier that cost presents for the only um, EU country that doesn't have primary care free at the point of access and cost is actually a huge barrier for low income households. So how do we address those challenges? Well, I suppose, first of all, we have to look at how is our system set up at the moment? And people might ask, well, you know, we put a substantial amount of resources into the healthcare system every year, and yet the outcomes are not what, what people might expect. And yes, we do. We put a substantial amount of money into the acute element of our healthcare services. So if the money is focused, obviously, on hospitals. We need to look at expanding our primary care and social care services so that people can be cared for where possible in their communities, reducing pressure on the acute care services, on the A&E, so we don't have the constant numbers every day of people who are waiting on trolleys, some for 24, 48 hours, if not more. We need to look at community care. And by community care, I mean caring for the entire community from cradle to grave and what might be needed. That means uh, being able to deliver care that children might need in the community. So some pediatric facilities, um, psychosocial facilities, and also the facilities that older people will need in their community. If, as Colette said, we're going to really build sustainable towns, sustainable villages, sustainable cities, then people need to be able to be cared for where possible in place. As I said, we're, our population is growing and aging. So the issue of home care is we're looking at potentially that being put on a statutory footing this year. We're very concerned about the resourcing of that. But then how do we continue to deliver home care to the population as it ages? So we need to look at long term planning based on our demographics, based on where people are. And as we roll out the regional health areas, this is going to become even more important to ensure that people can access the care they need, where they are based. And this does require us to look at resourcing. So we need to maintain the resources that were put into the health service to deal with the pandemic, those additional resources, but allocate them to the rollout of Slauncha Care. In order to implement the reforms that we need to roll out Slauncha Care, we need investment at the beginning so that we don't see an exacerbations of the problems that already exist as the population grows and ages. That might seem counterintuitive to be putting more money into the system, but if you put the money in where it's needed most to deliver the reform, then the long-term economic, social and health benefits will be immense. Another challenge that we, we face is uh, the challenge of sustainability, uh, climate mitigation and meeting our climate targets in a fair way. As Colette said, the climate crisis is one of the, I suppose, defining crises of our time. By the end of this decade, by 2030, globally, we need to cut our carbon emissions in half, which is a huge, huge ask. And we face an immense task in this country because as good as we are at creating a writing climate policy, in terms of implementation, we have been very poor. So we're now at the point where we spent two decades just what you know talking and walking around this and not actually implementing anything and now we're at the point where it's going to take some really heavy lifting and it's going to have a major impact on different sectors and communities so how 
do we meet our climate targets in a, in a fair way? And how do we ensure that each sector contributes to meeting our climate targets? Well, first off, we need to be integrating climate adaptation into our budget process, and we need to be expanding out the green budgetary process. And by this, I mean, looking at our social protection budget, for example, we need to look at what, what sort of innovation can we do there to look at supporting people and communities now and into the future who, you know, who looking at their jobs and livelihoods being impacted. So how do we ensure that there's a social floor put under those people, people in different sectors, people in different parts of the country, for example? How do we ensure that every department is spending the resources that, is, that are allocated to it in a sustainable way, that our departments and our public services are also um, supporting us in terms of meeting our climate targets? And there are ways and means of doing that in terms of tracking, measuring the outputs, even just in terms of energy, um, from public buildings, for example. So those are the kind of things that need to be integrated into the budgetary process. We need to fully resource a comprehensive mitigation and transition program for those communities that are going to be most impacted. And by this, I mean, we need to look at the resources, services and infrastructure that we need that are needed to support those communities to become resilient, to look at training, for example, upskilling, what opportunities may become available and how do we ensure that people can grasp those opportunities. But this means the in implementation of place-based policies because every area is different, every area is different um, assets, um, a different age profile, etc. So it cannot be a one-size-fits-all national policy. There needs to be the flexibility there for, for local adaptation. And finally, all of our national goals should be working together our economic, environmental and social goals should be aligned and we shouldn't have one working against the other. Moving on now to rural Ireland, which is one of the areas which, um, uh, which will really has already felt, but will really begin to feel the impact of climate mitigation. What kind of future is there for rural Ireland? And I would argue that despite a lot of the, the I suppose, the the narrative out there that would be quite negative about the future of rural Ireland. Actually, you know, we have an opportunity to ensure we have a rural Ireland full of vibrant, resilient communities that can offer um, work for people who want to stay there and that can provide the services and infrastructure across the life cycle. This needs um, a focus on rural proofing and we welcome the work of the Department on rural proofing and the, the published paper regarding options and the consultation around where with other departments as how we might implement a process of rural proofing. I think that would be crucial to delivering on the, the targets in our rural future and ensuring that we have resilient communities. We need balanced investments. We need that we know that rural communities have to, people, rural dwellers rather, have to travel three times further to access services, seven times further to access things like a supermarket, a school, a doctor. So we need to look at those and how we integrate our public services, which leads me on to an integrated transport network, which should be in line with our environmental goals, but also, also cognizant of the fact of the distance people have to travel in rural areas and if the infrastructure that is going to be required if we are going to roll out an electric transport network. And by that, I mean private vehicles and public transport. We need sustainable land manage in terms of our agriculture and sustainable agricultural practice and support for this. We need investment in our human capital, and by that I mean investment in people, investment in their skills, investment in their capacity, investing in people to get involved in their communities so that we can meet the challenges that rural Ireland faces head on. 
And in order to do that, we are going to need a just transition dialogue and not just the national just transition dialogue that is committed to in the climate action plan. We need place based just transition dialogue so that local communities can ensure that their voices are heard, that they can decide on what infrastructure and resources their community needs in order to adapt and also to thrive in a, you know, as we move to a greener economy. And in order to do all of this, to support rural communities and meet our green and digital transitions, we need the right skills. We need a multi-generational skills strategy. And by that, I mean, we need a strategy which can support people who are in education from primary school, secondary school, further education, higher education, to those who are in employment, to those who may not be in employment, to those who are distant from the labor market. We need to be able to support people across that cycle to upskill them, to give them the opportunity to have place-based skills development, particularly for those people who are in employment, particularly in the regions whose jobs may be at risk at, at least of some sort of change in terms of either the digital transition or climate mitigation, that we can deliver place-based training for those people so that they will be able to take up the opportunities that may occur in that region. And that's why the place-based element is so important because every region is different. In terms of lifelong learning, um, we have improved, which is really welcome, but we need to, we still need to target those who are most likely to take part in lifelong learning are those who already have, already have a third level education. We need to be targeting those who don't have third level education, those with lower levels of education and skills, get those people into lifelong learning. We need to be supporting smaller employers so that they can allow their employees to engage in reskilling, upskilling and lifelong learning programs so that we reach those who need it most because you get the greatest return for improving the skills with those of lower education levels of education than you do with those who have already have very high levels of education. So we need to reach those who need it most. We need to do it on a place-based basis, basis and we need to do it across the generations. And now I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Suzanne, to look at people and communities. Thanks, Michelle. When we look at engaging communities, what we see really is the infrastructure services and policies that a country develops and implements are in fact determined in large part by the makeup of its population. Ireland's population is growing. The preliminary results from Census 2022 recorded in the April of that year record a population of 5,123,536 people. This is an increase of 7.65% from Census 2016 and the highest population recorded since 1841. This is a good thing. It needs to be planned for and communities across the country must be involved in making those plans. The makeup of Ireland's population is changing. We have a reduction in fertility levels, coupled with increased life expectancy. So as Colette mentioned, Ireland's population, while still relatively young, is getting older. Again, that we are living longer is a good thing. It needs to be planned for and communities across the country must be involved in making those plans. We are a continually more diverse as a society. Net migration into Ireland was positive in April 2022, continuing a pattern that's been in place since, 2020, sorry, since 2015. A large number of those have arrived as refugees from Ukraine. That we are a country people want to come for, for work and education is a good thing. That we are in a position to provide refuge is a good thing. And again, all of this needs to be planned for and communities across the country must be involved in making those plans. 
deliberative democracy is a core tenant of living in a democracy at a time when the very fabric of democracy is increasingly under threat across the globe. It's something we must strive to protect and promote. And as both local and national government policies affect every one of us, so every one of us therefore should have our say. Local authorities and the public participation networks then work together collaboratively to support communities, build the capacity of member organisations to engage meaningfully on issues of policy that concern them. However, building real engagement at local level is a developmental process that requires intensive work patience investment and therefore we must adequately resource the structures for participation at local authority level and ensure the capacity building is an integral part of the process. Every person who calls Ireland home should have a right to have a say in how and where infrastructure and services are delivered and what policies are implemented to shape their communities. The last few years has really highlighted the importance of ensuring the provision of the, the myriad of services that are required for staying well and connected within our communities. We need to increase the provision of public transport in rural areas, provide greater investment in sustainable transport and biofuels. We need to invest in hard infrastructure for cycle lanes. We need to ensure connectivity to affordable high-speed broadband right across the country. We must invest in the continual professional development and well-being of library staff to ensure the success of the library strategy. And we need to increase funding to ensure things like sports participation and active lifestyle programmes. If we go on to the next slide, then we're going to look at our ongoing challenges then around poverty and inequality. <clears throat> Excuse me. High rates of poverty and income inequality have been the norm in Irish society for some time. They are problems that require greater attention than they co currently receive. And tackling these problems effectively is a multifaceted task. It requires an action on many fronts, which my colleagues have already touched on healthcare, education, accommodation. However, the most important requirement in tackling poverty is the provision of sufficient income to enable people to live life with dignity. No anti-poverty strategy can possibly be successful without an effective approach to addressing low incomes. In trying to measure the extent of poverty, the most common approach has been to identify a poverty line, and that's based on people's disposable income. Again, all of this is in much more detail in the book. But the European Commission and the UN use a poverty line located at 60% of median income. And when we convert that figure then for 2023, it's €318.53 for a single person. So any adult below this weekly income level will be counted as being risk of poverty. Immediately, what should spring to mind probably for most of the people in attending this is that already anybody on a core social welfare rate of €220 Euro is now €98 Euro below that poverty line. People are having to go without, simple as. Um, Ireland's level of poverty is very concerning with the figures all going in the wrong direction. We have 13.1% of the population, which equates to 671,183. 188,602 are children. Again, the long-term damage of that, we could write thesis, we could be here for days to discuss that. We have 143,633 of those are older people living in poverty. Worryingly, that's an increase of over 55,000 since 2021. And 133,565 people living in poverty are in employment. The working poor, those two words put together should never, they shouldn't, they don't make sense. We should never be using those two words in connection with each other, the working poor. What these figures do point to is a long-term economic and social impact of the cost of living crisis on households who are already struggling before these problems arrived. 
a report book commissioned by the Society of the Vincent de Paul and authored by Meenal Collins, I think maybe two, three years ago, looked at the hidden cost of poverty and it, it tried to estimate the public service cost of poverty in Ireland. In a nutshell, one euro in every 20 euro collected by the state from taxes, social insurance and charges ends up being allocated by the state to make up for the poverty that damages people's lives. A CSO report from December 2020 then examined the intergenerational transmission of disadvantages and again, amongst lots of other findings, noticed that the financial disadvantage in childhood appears to persist through to adulthood. In a wealthy country, we should, can and must do better. So if we look then at how we set a minimum floor of income to address poverty and inequality, we need to benchmark our social welfare rate. A lesson from past experiences of economic recovery and growth is that the weakest in our society get left behind unless welfare increases keep track with increases elsewhere in the economy. Benchmarking minimum rates of social welfare to movements in average earnings is therefore an important policy priority. All of the workings out are contained in the book, but trust me when I tell you, 27.5% of average earnings is the appropriate benchmark that we've arrived at for minimum social welfare payments. And it does reflect a continuation of a previous benchmark used. And given the importance of this benchmark to the living standards of many in Irish society and its relevance to anti-poverty commitments, the current deficit between the 27.5% and core social welfare rates is €22.35 a week, which really highlights the need for government and as we move towards budget 2024 to further increase minimum social welfare rates by 20 a week. Our ask in budget 2023, along with many others, was for €20, Euro, we got 12 but when you factor in that the actual purchasing power of core social welfare rates, despite increases since 2020, will actually be 18 euro less in 2024 than it was in 20. 2020, a 20 euro increase will simply return us to where we were three years ago and more will be needed if poverty rates are to be impacted. And again, considering that we have all of these anti-poverty commitments in the Roadmap for Social Inclusion, the SDGs, Programme for Government, this is a really, really key area. Then moving towards, I suppose, a minimum standard of living, government's approach to date is exactly the opposite of what's required. The failure to benchmark social welfare rates suggests a lack of interest, as Sean said, in repairing what is a broken social contract. Budget 2023 widened the rich poor gap by €199. Euro. In effect, the resources available were shared in a manner that favoured the better off over the poor. A minimum social floor means maintaining adequate levels of social welfare, and it's vital to ensure that we do not see an increase in poverty and deprivation. If those, independent, if those who are dependent on social welfare are not to fall behind the rest of society at times of economic growth, we need that benchmarking. And then if we look then, I suppose, the employment challenges that we see, the data and economic forecasts from the Central Statistics Office for the remainder of 2023 indicate that unemployment will reach an annual rate of between 4.5 and 5% of the labour force in 2023. The potential for an economic slowdown alongside economic disruption point towards upward risks for these expectations. However, relative to the position in late 20 and early 2021 pandemic periods, these outcomes represent a very welcome improvement. Given the current strength of the labour market, we believe that the major emphasis should be placed on those who are experiencing long-term unemployment, especially those with the lowest education. It really reflects points Michelle made in the educational uh, piece that, you know, previous experience here and elsewhere have shown that many of those under 25 and over 55 find it challenging to return to employment after a period of 
unemployment and that given this we believe that that major commitment to retraining and reskilling will be required in years ahead and as michelle said it, it does it pays off this is where we need to be putting our resources ireland has experienced a growth in various forms of part-time work and a high number of underemployed workers over recent years while the number of people employed is higher now than at any other time just one in five are part-time and there are 102,000 people of whom are underemployed and by that we mean working part-time but would be available for more hours if they were there. Judged over time, the CSO labour force data suggests the emergence of a greater number of workers in precarious employment situations. The high number of individuals with less work hours than ideal, as well as those with persistent uncertainties concerning the number and times of hours required for work, required for work is a major labour market challenge and one which may grow in the period ahead. Now is the time to adopt substantial measures to address and eliminate these problems. Our commitment to the development and adoption of a living wage reflects this. However, aside from pay rates, policy also needs to address issues of work quality and security more aggressively. The low rate of employment amongst people with a disability is of a concern. Apart from restricting their participation in society, it also ties them into state-dependent low-income situations. Therefore, it's not surprising that Ireland's poverty figures reveal that people who are ill who have a disability are part of a group at high risk of poverty. We believe that further efforts should be made to reduce the impediments faced by people with a disability to obtain employment in particular consideration should be given to reforming the current situation which many face losing their benefits as they take up employment. This situation ignores the additional costs faced by people with disability in pursuing their day-to-day -day lives. For many disabled people, the opportunity to take up employment is denied to them and they are trapped in unemployment, poverty, or both. And we really need to recognise all work. Um, most of us would understand and recognise that a person can be working very hard outside a conventionally accepted job. Much of the work carried out in the community and voluntary sector comes under this heading, so does much of the work done at home. Government should recognise in a more formal way all forms of work. We believe that everyone has a right to work to contribute to his or own her development and that of the community and wider society. We also believe that policy making in this area should not exclusively be focused on job creation. Policy should recognise that work and a job are not always the same thing. Thank you very much. I think I'm handing back to Sean. Thank you. Thanks, Suzanne. So finally, uh, to get to this issue of social dialogue again that I uh, mentioned at the beginning. It is one of Ireland's great failures that we cannot seem to envisage a society and economy based on a system other than what's already in place. Uh, and this current system is working against community and in favor of profit making. And Ireland needs a new social dialogue to facilitate movement towards that new social contract that we have repeated many times that Ireland now needs. <coughs> Sorry. We are calling today for dialogue to begin promptly on a new social contract, which would commit the state and social partners to improving economic management with a view to enhancing the standard of living, uh, the quality of life, and the well being of all the Republic's residents. The dialogue should involve government, trade unions, and employers the community and voluntary pillar, as well as farmers and the environmental pillar. At the core of the new model of social dialogue is not the drive towards cost competitiveness, although this is incorporated uh, through the wage bargaining process and productivity improvements. 
but a broad-based enhancement of capabilities in the economy and society should be the focus of social dialogue. These do not emerge spontaneously, however, and the role of civil society, where the community and voluntary sector are particularly important in Ireland, is critical here. Dialogue is the means by which different sectors could negotiate to agree on a future they wish to achieve and set out pathways towards reaching that destination and heal any disagreements and divisions in the process. <clears throat> in the absence of a national social dialogue, what we find is the strongest can fight their corner best in the open market or the political realm, while the weakest will be left behind. In such a scenario, inequality thrives. It's already at unacceptable levels and will continue to grow. And the integrity, integrated development that is required will not be achieved. At a national level, a new structure for social dialogue is required where issues may be discussed in a deliberative manner. Any proposal for social dialogue should involve government, trade unions and employers, community and voluntary pillars, as well as farmers and environmental pillar, as we've said already. Any structure for social dialogue that excludes any of these groups would be a recipe for ensuring that most of Ireland's resources would be captured by those participating in the discussion. Such an approach would simply lead to deepening divisions and growing inequality in Ireland. As Ireland moves into a post-COVID world, it needs to cure the virus of social injustice, inequality, marginalization, and environmental destruction. Social Justice Ireland's proposals, as set out in this, uh, our annual socioeconomic review published today, this would see, these would see government policy focused on delivering a new social contract with five outcomes delivered simultaneously. A vibrant economy, decent infrastructure and services, just taxation, good governance, and sustainability. This approach is not simply doable, it is also desirable, effective, and efficient. It's time for change. So back to Michelle. Thank you, Sean and Colette and Suzanne. So now, as I said, put your questions into the Q&A box. So we're going to answer your questions now. So I'll stop sharing the screen and we have I've had a few questions come in, so I'll just go through them. And I have one here from Christine. I have a number, which, but I think I'll take this one first. And Christine, I'm going to divide it into two, actually. So the first part to Sean, the second part to Colette. So the first part, Sean, Christina asked the central bank um, has mitigation plans and, and the European Central Bank, I presume, uh, to protect communities like in Ireland when a crisis comes. But in terms of the current crisis, in terms of rising energy costs, inflation, rising costs of food and cost of living, why is it that communities have been absorbing all of these costs and individuals? And why has there not been greater support? And Colette, to you, when it comes to crisis situations, particularly the you, situation in Ukraine, how is it that it's communities that have had to respond and have responded really well to those fleeing war, seeking refuge. But why is it that there hasn't been a mitigation plan or they certainly seem to be lacking when it comes to that crisis? So, Sean, I'll go to you first and then Colette. I think it's our experience in crisis situation internationally that 
international institutions tend uh, uh, tend to support. I'm talking there about the the World Bank, the IMF, the European Central Bank, the European Commission, and others seem to uh, focused always on protecting the major kinds of uh, institutions that are th that are there. Um, so they they employ they they support the banks, for example, uh, hugely uh, in the crisis we had a decade ago, when the banks in fact caused a huge crisis. But yeah, actually, uh, the banks did not suffer nearly as much as ordinary people, because at the end of the day, for example, in Ireland, the taxpayer had to pay sixty four billion euro uh, to clear a, a, a situation that had been caused, uh, created by the banks and caused by the banks. And as a result, uh, I think there's a lot of people in Ireland who are still have, uh, suffering as a result of that, whether that's on the on the on the housing cost side or whether it's a, it's on services which have not been restored. So I think there's there's a, a kind of a tendency in the banking systems uh, and in the uh, not just in the banking systems, but in the international institutions to support the status quo or to go back towards the status quo, rather than recognizing that the overall uh, model is actually broken. And that's what we're saying over and over again. It's time for the sort of what we would call the various uh, people in society, the various groups in society, to be able to sit down together and plan out or analyze, provide an analysis, analyze the situation, analyze it accurately, and build a solution based on evidence. Because much of the solutions, many of the solutions being proposed are not based on very good evidence at all. Thanks, John and Kalash. I'll pass over to you. Thanks. Um, thanks, Michelle. And thanks, Christina. Yeah, on the, I suppose, why are the, the communities kind of left holding the fort on this? And it's basically because we don't plan for it properly. Um, we have neglected to plan. Um, and therefore, this came, I suppose it came as an infrastructural shock. So what I mean by that is, you know, migration force displacement is not new. Um, we have seen the impact of climate change for decades. I am old enough to remember Live Aid concerts and choker boxes and all of those things. Um, but it was it's always viewed at a distance. Um, you know, and it, I suppose with Ukraine, what happened was we were essentially made to take some sort of ownership and to take on board uh, our obligations quite seriously. So there was the Temporary Protection Directive. It had been put in place 21 years earlier, um, I think in response to Kosovo, but it was only actually implemented on the 24th of February um, 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, and we were then forced to take on these obligations around prov providing accommodation, providing welfare, providing healthcare supports, uh, education supports, and, and all, of, all of the things that went with all of that. Um, and it happened so fast. Now, I'm not saying that this is not in any way excusing the response, but it happened so fast that the only way to properly engage was to mobilize communities and community groups to actually stand up and 
and take this on board and to actually be able to do the kind of integration work that the department of the government just weren't set up to do. Um, and I suppose there was a blueprint there as well in that we had just come through the, the height of COVID. There had been the community call and there was a lot of community mobilization in relation to the information around COVID and the supports that were available there. And so there was a, a blueprint almost that could be transferred to the Ukrainian crisis. That's not to say that any of that is the way it should have been. Um, you know, the community and voluntary sector are playing a huge and very, very valuable role in supporting um, migrants across the board, but certainly with the almost 70,000 migrants coming from Ukraine. Um, and they were instrumental in the whole child protection piece, particularly for, for unaccompanied minors. And they still play that role for those who are staying with families who didn't go necessarily through the, the more official route, but who were matched uh, while they were in Ukraine with families in Ireland um, and, and came across. And so the, those kind of the, those child protection things still need to be implemented. They still still need to be supported and addressed. There still needs to be guard vetting. Um, and it's just it's kind of slowed down, I suppose. But it's in answer to the question of, of why it's because there was a ready made system there to do it and there wasn't an alternative. Um, and that's not good enough. Our What we would like to see, our view on it is that it isn't good enough. Our view on it is that we should be forecasting appropriately um, in terms of our population projections. We should be projecting for all types of migrancy, um, inward and outward. Um, we should be looking at migrancy due to things like climate destruction, through things like forced displacement, persecution, all of those things as a fact of, of living in a global world, which we do. Um, and we should be planning for that when we plan our resources. So at the moment we plan for our population to age, um, we plan for the fact that we have lower fertility rates, we plan for our economic migrancy, but we need to broaden that out um, to, to plan much more holistically in terms of both the skills that migrants have, but also the needs that they have and to be able to support those. Thanks, Colette. Um, a couple of questions here. Actually, Suzanne, I have two questions for you. So the first one is Katerina. That's, so I'll get you to answer them both together. Um, what are proposals in terms of helping people in poverty to increase their income? Um, and I suppose what sort of influence do we have in terms of encouraging those in power to deal with people in poverty? Then I also have a question here from uh Tom Donegan saying, can we afford to give people on welfare ongoing increases every year? What about people in jobs who are struggling? So, Suzanne, I'll ask you to answer those, please. <laughs> we could still be here this time tomorrow. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing about, I suppose, people in poverty increasing their income, whenever the discussion comes up, say, with, with the government department, it will be job activation. So job activation is, is their key policy response to anybody on a lower fixed income. And that's fine. You need to look then at your education, your upskilling, your retraining. You also need to look at job quality. Um, if somebody is, is remaining on social welfare because they're better off on social welfare, that's not a reflection of a, of a social, of a generous social welfare system. That's a reflection on poor job quality, quite simply. Um, our colleagues right the way across the sector, right the way across the country will, will you know, can, can validate again, even the figures we've shown there between anybody on 220 euro a week is 98 euro below the poverty line. So people don't decide to stay on social welfare because they're going to be better off. This is a conversation about job quality. Um, but I think it's also a conversation about services. So if you want to increase the amount of money that people have in their pockets, 
You need to look at things like transport. You need to look at things like accommodation costs. You need to look at childcare costs. You need to look, as, as we said, you know, the, the prices of things in the supermarket. You need to look at what we charge BAT on or what we don't charge BAT on. So there's lots of different ways about of, of, of increasing, um, you know, increasing people's incomes. And a lot of it then for people who are, for whatever reason, furthest away from, from the labour market, be it an inability to engage with the labour market for whatever reason. If somebody is on social welfare, what we need to ensure then is that social welfare does what it's supposed to do, which is to maintain a basic standard of living for you whilst you're in receipt of social welfare. So there's lots of different ways of coming at that. But, you know, basic incomes, uh, looking at a, a living wage for, for anybody who's working, and again, just ensuring that core social welfare rates do provide that basic floor. In terms, then, I suppose, of um, the influence, we have discussions like this. We have our pre-budget discussions. We will have uh, bilaterals with departments. So this is an ongoing conversation all the time. And I think as well, it's, a lot of it is about the, the evidence. So it's, it's, it's no good saying, well, that's not enough, because the next question is, well, how much is enough? So the evidence is always really, really important. Looking at things like property lines, looking at things like the benchmarking, looking at uh, minimum essential standard of living. So looking at all of these things and again, reflecting back to people's lived realities, which um, I suppose the, the, the question then about, you know, can we afford to it? We can't afford not to. I think it's a double negative. But, you know, we, we've seen the impact that poverty has. We've seen the damage that poverty has. Michal Collins and the SPP report showed that, that other intergenerational transmission of disadvantage report showed that. The damage that's done, especially to children, which might pick up, I think, on, on, a, on a question that's coming up next, but the damage that's done to children who are living in poverty lasts a lifetime, and there's a cost to that. So inaction isn't free. If we do nothing, we don't save any money. The more money that we don't spend on social welfare, the damage will be done in the health system. It will be picked up in education. It will be picked up in housing all the way along. So I think providing people, if we are, and again, it goes back to this point, we're a wealthy country. The money is there. How we spend it is really the key issue and where we value and who we value in society. All taxation policy you can see all of that. Who's um, who's getting what and why? I think is really key. Could I add one thing to that, Michelle uh, and, and and Suzanne? Just that I would be very concerned, and I think we in social justice Ireland generally are very concerned uh, about the fact that government seems to be moving away from building policy based on evidence. Uh, and the, the the reality there is that if you look at what was illustrated in the presentation about what uh, what you said yourself, Suzanne, about how it was a 20 euro a week was required to just manage uh, to, to maintain the standard of living uh, that what people on welfare had uh, a year or two previously. Uh, the government only gave 12, but then they have they have succeeded in convincing a large part of the population that they've actually treated poor people so well that they're better off. And that's that's the result of PR, not the result of any evidence. All the evidence points in a different direction. So we would be arguing very strongly that government policy should be based, should be evidence based and not sort of PR driven. 
Thanks, John. Uh, there's a couple of ones in here. Another one from uh, Katarina in terms of data, data in terms of poverty. Yes, the Central Statistics Office, Office publishes the survey on income and living conditions every year, which uh, gives a breakdown of the numbers in poverty and also deprivation. There's one there from Nesson Vaughan, um, just a comment welcoming the report and a comment around the impact of early years, which absolutely has a profound bearing, Nesson, on um, the outcomes for children and young people. And I, you're probably referring there to the Heckman curve, which shows that, the, you know, at the points that you invest in the education cycle, then the, the economic and social outcome Obviously, zero to four is hugely important. But if you keep investing in children, young people, and then adults, um, you know, throughout the life cycle, even though the returns are not as great, you still get a return. You still get more back than you put in, which is why it's so important that we address things like educational disadvantage the whole way through the education cycle, whilst at the same time, and we've advocated for this and others that we, in terms of, early childhood care and education, we should be looking at how can state do a better job of supporting that and especially supporting children who are most in need, who have perhaps not had the best start in life and how we can support those children and not just in those first four years, how we continue to support them throughout their education. Now, I'm conscious of time here. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to give space for two more questions. So. Um, Three, actually, one for myself. Um, do you think there's space for a new party to represent rural Ireland? One for Colette first. Colette, in terms of where did you get the social housing waiting list number? Because there's a big difference between ours and uh, governments uh, and the department's number. And Sean, uh, a question for you, uh, which we'll finish with, I think. Why would social dialogue work this time around um, if when it didn't work last time? So maybe I'll start with myself in terms of the rural party move to Colette in terms of housing, then Sean, social dialogue. Do I think the space for a rural party? Well, to be honest, if we actually implemented some of the policies that we have, then we'd be doing really well. I think if we get the rural proofing right and we actually meet the targets in our rural future, then yes. Um, we rural Ireland would be doing very well at the moment. I think what's out there, I don't think it would actually make any difference to the situation of rural Ireland at the moment. I think what we need to do is to influence the policy and make sure that the good policies and targets that are there are implemented and fully resourced in a timely manner. Colette, I'll pass over to you on the social housing number. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so we look at the social housing waiting lists and there's there's just shy of about 60,000 um, households there, about 57 and a bit. Um, there, We also look then at those households who are in receipt of the housing assistance payment because they are social housing tenants but are housed in the rented sector, the private rented sector. And it is worth noting that the Taoiseach himself, Leo Radker, came out very recently saying that they are social housing tenants, um, which was a, is a departure from what was being called social housing solutions, which came in in September 2014. So you add both of those. You also look at, at um, tenants who are in the private rented sector who are being housed with the rental accommodation scheme. They're not they're not included in the official uh, waiting lists. They're the same as HAP. They're not included in the official waiting lists either. Um, and there's roughly about 17,000 people in, or sorry, households in receipt of, of that. 
um, as well. So when you look for obsolescence within that system, you come up to about 133,000 households, not people, but households. Thanks, Colette. And finally, Sean, why do you think social dialogue would work this time around? Uh, I think you you were saying that because it didn't work the last time. In actual fact, it worked very well the last time. Uh, the, the issue at the end, uh, when social dialogue finished the last time, uh, with, uh, it, it was caused by the fact that the banks imploded. We had a, a complete meltdown of our uh, system, uh, basically because banks had overlent for housing purposes, driven the price of houses through the roof, and people had totally overstretched themselves. That's not a failure of social dialogue. Why it would work is very simple. It basically brings together around the table uh, all the various perspectives on what needs to be done. And the evidence can be presented by all the various uh, viewpoints, if you like, but then they have to be answered as well. So employers or trade unions or uh, farmers or the environmental pillar or the community and voluntary pillar can, can basically be there and present their own views. And they will then have to defend those views with, uh, with all, against the evidence from all the others. That's one of the reasons why I think it's very, very important that there be evidence-based solutions all the time and that the focus should be on generating evidence-based solutions. In that context, there is also a, 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 a big improvement in what government has at the moment, because when you have a group like the community and voluntary pillar at the table or the environmental pillar, for that matter, you have a, a, a very clear perspective that isn't otherwise at the table when decision making is, is in progress. And if you have a situation where there's some people at the table and there's other groups are not, our experience, our, our, our experience over many years has been that if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And that's the danger we have to face all the time. And, and one of the reasons, for example, um, that um, there hasn't been a priority for uh, on tackling poverty or social exclusion or the kinds of things that we have been outlining here today, uh, I think one of the reasons that there hasn't been that focus is that people with that those as their primary perspective weren't at the table in the discussions even with employers and trade unions at the at the table i acknowledge fully they they are concerned about poverty and uh, and exclusion as well but their primary concern is workers and pay rates and so on the job situation we need people in that process uh, who can actually represent all the, the primary, their primary concern would be uh, tackling poverty, inequality, and so on. One final thing in that for clarification, the community and voluntary pillar is not seeking and never has sought to be at the table when pay rates, for example, are being discussed or whatever. That's not something that we have an expertise in. But what we can do is ensure that all the money doesn't go to, to pay and pay related or business related issues or like tax cuts for business or whatever. And then we wind up in a situation where government has no money for the kinds of things that we're talking about to try to build a fairer society. That's why I, in a way we need a new social contract. And the only way to negotiate it is through a, a real social dialogue where 
all the key uh, the key players in society, the key perspectives are represented around the same table and have to basically present their arguments based on evidence and defend them effectively. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. And so I'm going to wrap up here. First of all, I'd just like to thank everybody for attending the webinar. Uh, we really appreciate giving you you giving up your time this afternoon. The, we will be emailing everyone a link to the publication and to a recording of this webinar. And for those of you who would like the publication now, you can download it from our website, socialjustice.ie. So without further ado, I would like to thank you all for attending the launch of Social Justice Matters 2023. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas, any conversations you'd like us to have, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Till next time, stay safe.